Hello and welcome to this episode of Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims, and I am thrilled to bring on to this episode a friend of mine, fellow podcaster, BJ from the Rock and or Roll podcast. BJ, welcome. Hey, Craig. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're one of my favorite people to podcast with. We've done um, episodes of Rock and or Roll together. We did two episodes of my Big Screen Book Club together. I just love chatting with you, so uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. We also did the aborted... Uh... Uh, Stephen King, what's that, 12? Oh, 112263, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it's funny, I was debating whether or not I should take that off of the, the feed or not, but <laughs> right. I looked the other day and like somebody was still downloading it, so I'm like, oh, I guess I'll let them be disappointed, but man, that series disappointed me so much. Yeah. I mean, so much that we didn't even finish <laughs> Well, yeah, it, it, yeah, we just—it was just so much negativity. It was like, why, why, why finish this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Focusing on some positive stuff. Can you tell people who don't know a little bit about the Rock and or Roll podcast? I'm a big record collector, and I've been obsessed with music pretty much my whole life. So that's what the podcast is. It's for people who want to deep dive into anything and everything related to music and you know record collecting and that kind of thing yeah excellent and you have a lot of fun up episodes in there a lot of solo episodes but you also do have guest episodes where you have folks like me on and you know you create some fun top 10 lists and things like that so definitely check it out i will include a link in the show notes but bj let's get right into pulp fiction what are your earliest pulp fiction memories yeah, well, I you know have a very clear memory of the first time I saw the film. I'm pretty sure it was on opening weekend, or otherwise it was the second week. I'm not 100% sure on that, but it definitely was early. I had seen Reservoir Dogs. Uh, that that was an interesting thing because I rented we rented that. There were four of us that watched that. I remember in my in a uh, Sarah Kozar's basement and. Um, I clearly remember the moment when Mr. Blonde opens the trunk and the cop is in there. And me and another guy that was watching it, Jason Schrader, we burst out laughing. And Andrew <laughs> Andrew, and Sarah looked very confused. And I, it was kind of a moment where I realized, you know, this isn't for everyone. <laughs> you know, some, right, people, right. some people get this and some people don't. And I always remember that moment and noticing how when me and Jason laughed really hard and they looked confused, I definitely, you know, took note of that and thought it was interesting because I was probably like 19 years old, something like that. So yeah, so when Pulp Fiction came out, I don't think I really knew who Quentin Tarantino was necessarily. I remember I worked in the basement of the student union. So I was in college in 94. I was 20 years old and uh, I worked in the basement in the dish room which was had we had this giant dishwasher that you would send all the pots and pans and stuff through because there was a cafeteria upstairs. And I remember kind of my manager was this guy named Sean who had really long hair and wore combat boots. And, you know, it was the 90s in a college town. And I remember, you know, The Onion, back then The Onion was only a Madison publication. It was a... Yeah. And, uh, they, the AV Club, you know, you always went to the AV Club to see what records were coming out and what movies were coming out. And I figure they probably had a write-up about Pulp Fiction in there. And then I remember Sean 
telling me that it was the guy who made Reservoir Dogs. And so everybody was talking about it, you know, in a college town in the 90s. I mean, it was, you know, the revolution will be televised. Everything was alternative. And Pulp Fiction was like the nirvana of movies, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like the nevermind of movies. So me and my roommate, I'm guess I know it was on the weekend. So it might have been like Saturday or Sunday right after the film opened. Me and my roommate Dave walked. <laughs> we literally had to walk like two blocks to get to the movie theater on State Street, the Orpheum. We walked over there. And as we were walking up to the door, that guy, Sean, and my friend Chris, who also worked in the same building, were walking up. <laughs> and they had already seen the movie like the night before. And they were coming back for the second time. And so we all met up just by chance, and the four of us went in and saw the movie. And, you know, it was just a mind-blowing experience, because it was like nothing you had ever seen before, you know? Oh, absolutely. And it's really interesting that you had seen Reservoir Dogs prior. Right. You know, that's a movie a lot of people discovered after Pulp Fiction. But the, the one thing that always sort of got me about Reservoir Dogs, BJ, was the fact that there was a screening of it at one point, and... Wes Craven, who directed Last House on the Left, actually got up and left during the torture scene where um, Mr. Blonde cuts off poor Marvin's ear. <laughs> right. And I was like, wow, you know, that this is the guy that made The Last House on the Left. He made the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. But that bit of violence he couldn't handle. My dad is a big movie fan. And... I had grown up watching movies ever since I was a little kid, had seen everything from, like, Serpico to The Verdict to, you know, one of my dad's favorite movies was always Runaway Train with John Voight and Eric Roberts. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael Crichton was involved with that. Right. We just watched every movie and were really, you know, Reservoir Dogs, when I saw the movie, I knew my dad would love it. And my dad did. (laughs) He did love it. You know, he really loved it. So it was in the vein of, like... The kind of movies I was used to seeing anyways, <laughs> ever since I was a kid, you know, I always, you know, had great appreciation for a good movie and, you know, was definitely used to violence <laughs> and and the dark black humor, you know, that there's a lot of really dark humor that, like I said, is not for everyone. That's why it's a cult film, because it's not it's not for everyone. But the people that it's for really love it, you know? Absolutely. And it must have been cool, you know, like one of the first faces you see on screen is Tim Roth, who is a big part of Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. You know, rewatching Pulp Fiction uh, this weekend, I don't, I have no idea when the last time I saw it was, but it was a long time ago. So it was a lot of fun to watch and, you know, brought back a lot of memories. Excellent. Now, is there any particular scene in the movie that you remember looking forward to on the rewatch? Yeah, for me, the movie really kicks in. I mean, I remember it's really fun to watch from the beginning, and it's really entertaining. But when it becomes something where, like, when you're sitting in the theater the first time you see it, you start to realize this is really something special. I think the real moment is when Marcellus is crossing the street. In front of Bruce Willis. And then from then on, you get just these insane twists that just keep coming and have you shaking your head in disbelief, you know? So when they end up with the gimp, and then you get the scene where the guy 
unloads the gun and the bullets all miss. I mean, I love those kind of just things that, you know, you're like, wow, that's that's an awesome idea. Like, there's so many just really cool ideas that just keep coming at you. That's what made the movie so special, was just these really great ideas that just kept coming that were completely unexpected, you know? Oh, totally. And you brought up a good point there because it's one of those things where you can't guess where it's going to go. I mean, when you see Marcellus crossing the street with the coffee and he pauses there, you know, I, I don't think many people would say, oh, Butch is going <laughs> to run him over and then crash. You know, I know. How amazing is it? They're both injured and they're ch- yeah. he's chasing him, but neither, they, neither one of them could hardly even run. You know, they're just like stumbling chasing each other so this is already a great scene you're already loving it and then they end up in that pawn shop and then it just goes completely insane from there so uh, you know how could you not be loving this ride that you're on once all of that craziness starts you know it's just it's amazing yeah and you know it's funny because in 2020 you talk about bruce willis and a lot of times you're talking about the latest straight-to-DVD movie or straight-to-streaming movie that he made where he obviously took a paycheck. But Pulp Fiction is one of those movies where he didn't get paid a lot of money for it at a time when he was a huge star. But his performance in that movie is so, so good. And I think a lot of people probably don't remember how good it is because it's pretty understated performance. But that sequence where after the car crash, before they run into the, the pawn shop, yeah, he's doing some some great acting there. And again, he's got to act like he's, you know, sort of dazed from a car crash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then when they're sitting there with the ball gigs and they're both just, you see the looks on their faces as they're like, what the fuck is happening here? Wait, what are they up? What's going on? What are they going to do? What are they going to do to me, you know? And I love how they're just sitting there. And they can't see what's happening behind them, but we can see when they're taking the gimp out of the crate or whatever. And so it's just like you're there with, uh, you know, Butch and Marcellus as they're figuring out that, you know, they're they, all of a sudden they're in a modern day version of Deliverance. They're like, how the fuck did we end up here? You know? <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, let's stay let's stay in the, the pawn shop basement for a minute. What do you think, I mean, we know that life didn't turn out well for Zed, but <laughs> how long do you think Marcellus kept Zed around for? <laughs> when he went medieval on his ass? I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> probably as long as he could, you know, <laughs> until he died. But they probably weren't, were trying to keep him alive as long as they could <laughs> while inflicting the maximum level of pain. That's what I. Yeah. One thing I was thinking about is, you know, when Marcellus lets Butch go, he doesn't know that Butch just killed Vincent Vega. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Know, he's going to figure that out. He's going to learn that pretty quick when he starts making calls. <laughs> oh, know? yeah. Um, there's a great moment in that, um, a great moment of comedy in that scene right after, you know, Marcellus shoots Zed in the crotch. Um, <laughs> and Butch asks him if he's okay. <laughs> yeah. I love the way uh, Ving Rhames just never looks at him. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the Marcellus... You know, like, little things I loved about this movie are the Band-Aid on the back of his neck. You know, just something like that I love. 
and and the way Marcellus, you know, either you don't see his face, or when you do see his face, he just talks looking straight ahead and never looks at Bruce, never once looks at him. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love the, those kind of character choices. I, I love the character of Marcellus. I love that. That Band-Aid <laughs> was always one of my favorite things. <laughs> well, yeah, and that Band-Aid created so much conversation. It, yeah. It's so funny. I mean, I, I think me and you are similar in the sense that we don't need an answer for everything in a movie. Right. And, you know, you, you read about Pulp Fiction, the amount of things that people want answers to, like, you know, why is the Band-Aid there? And then you get these weird theories that, like, it's where they extracted Marcellus's soul to put in the briefcase. <laughs> right. <laughs> It just made me laugh the first time I saw it, you know, the first the first shot where he's talking to Bruce Willis and he's just got this big bandaid on the back of his neck. It's funny, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, and that's a that's another really great creative choice that Quentin made in that scene where you're just holding on Butch the whole time. Right. And, you know, there's little moments where the camera might move slightly, uh, but that's just the cameraman, you know, sort of adjusting or whatever. But... That is one of those moments for me that was like this. That was such an untraditional way of doing things. So many directors or editors would be tempted to cut to the reverse shot or something and see Marcellus. But by framing it the way they did, you know, you get this focus on Butch, but then also, you know, it helps establish Marcellus as like this bigger than life figure. Right. Right. There's a lot of funny moments in that movie. And especially that sequence where you get, like, just the random Kathy Griffin <laughs> yeah. appearance, you know, and, and, you know, Kathy Griffin is still, you know, a thing in 2020. Um, and it's just funny to see her there. Yeah, that that's a that's a really, really great sequence. And, you know, that's a good point you bring up about, you know, that's where the, the movie really sort of takes off and going in directions that we, we don't expect. Yeah, that's what made it a completely different you know, movie watching experience was when just the the crazy twists started happening that were great little ideas. You know, I, I, I know I just loved the idea of the guy unloading the gun at them and then they turn around and look at all the bullet holes in the wall behind them. That's it's hilarious, you know, it's a great little twist that I really enjoyed. Yeah, and and it's funny because in the script for Pulp Fiction that whole sequence with um, the Jerry Seinfeld guy, that's what I call him, uh, but it's Alexis Arquette, that whole sequence is in the first scene where they kill Brett. Um, instead of fading out, they actually you know, have that whole sequence where the guy runs out and screams die, which, again, you see it in the movie, and it's, it's so great that it was transposed to where it was, and it feels perfect there. And when you read the script and you see it front-loaded, it's kind of weird. Yeah, I love the way it's broken up like that. Like, I really appreciated when John Travolta and Samuel Jackson come walking in to Marcellus's club when he's talking to, to Butch, and they're wearing the, you know, the ridiculous clothes because they've already gone through the whole, you know, everything that happens when the guy gets shot in the back seat and everything. They've already gone through all of that, but we haven't seen that yet, but we see them in those clothes, you know, before. And I guess once you're watching the movie again after you've already seen it, that's a little, you know, a little thing that you can notice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're like, why are these hitmen that are normally dressed up in suits wearing, you know, volleyball gear? And then why is Vincent Vega such an asshole 
to Bruce Willis, <laughs> you know? And, mm-hmm. and they, uh, you know, I was noticing that. So when Bruce Willis gets to shoot him, I, I was thinking they should have thrown something in there to, to call back to that, <laughs> that moment when Vincent was such an asshole to him for no reason. He calls him yeah. punchy. So yeah. then when Vincent comes out of the bathroom... They never really, they, you know, Bruce Willis could have made, maybe made a little comment or, you know, they there was nothing there to quite, you know, call back to that moment. And Bruce yeah. Willis is now like, oh, yeah, punchy, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, punch this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, we haven't really talked about, you know, I had no memory of who Samuel L. Jackson was before this movie. If I had seen him in anything, I hadn't, he hadn't registered with me. So right. that that was the one of the major revelations of this film was, of course, Samuel L. Jackson is unbelievable. But also, John Travolta was total stunt casting at the time. It was an amazing idea, plus he's so great. One thing I was noticing is how amazing his performance is in the whole scene at the drug dealer's house, you know, when, she get, when they have to give her the adrenaline shot. John Travolta is amazing in that scene. You know, because he's just freaking out, and he's yelling at Eric Stoltz, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. And then you've got Jody Rosanna Arquette. She's great, She plays yeah. that scene wonderfully. Yeah. The other thing, getting back to Travolta, though, is the whole sequence with Mia at the at the house, and then at Jackrabbit Slims, though, is he's on a heroin high there. Yeah. So you watch that scene, and, I mean, he never betrays that. I mean, he plays it, you know, he's really sort of... I don't know if flat's the right word, but, you know, he's ultra relaxed. I mean, you can hear it even when he talks about the $5 shake and he tries the $5 shake and, like, just the way he says, you know, it's pretty fucking good. Yeah. The way he kind of, like, slurs the end of it. I hope that Travolta sends Quentin Tarantino, a, like, a, 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 a nice Christmas card every year, you know, as a thank you for doing what he did to his career. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, if people, you know, younger people... Who don't under who don't have the perspective don't under won't understand, can't possibly understand who what where John Travolta's career was at before this film and how this film completely reinvented him, and he had a whole second career because of it, you know, and the idea of putting him in this movie in that role at the time, like I said, it was stunt casting. <laughs> Which Tarantino became very good at. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. He did it in his next movie to a, I mean, he took him to an Oscar nomination, but Robert Forrester in Jackie Brown, I mean, right. that was another guy who was sort of like a relic of the 70s that, you know, Tarantino sort of gave um, an opportunity to, you know, and he ended up having a, a pretty good a career after Jackie Brown, and you know, he died, I, I think, within the last year. But yeah. yeah, no, that's definitely one of the main things Tarantino's known for. Getting back to Butch and Vincent real quick, though, you know there's that scene where Vincent is with Lance buying the the heroin, and he talks about his car getting keyed. Right. Well, apparently, Butch is the one that keyed the car. (laughs) So I don't know how that fits up in the timeline, but getting back to the two of them real quick, you know, I almost wonder if, if Vincent didn't like or didn't respect butch because he knew he was a fighter that was taking a payoff yeah there's no explanation for why he's such an asshole to him yeah you know if there's stuff that was in the script that didn't end up in the film that maybe explained them more like you're saying 
Butch keying his car, where does that come from? Did Tarantino say that at some point, or is that in a, in an, a draft? I'm going to have to dig that up, and I'll include it in the show notes. Yeah. But I think that's another good thing about this movie is, you know, there's characters in it that you're not particularly supposed to root for, but you root for them to get out of that moment. But, you know, you get on board with these characters because, you know, you, you've seen them sort of just have casual conversations, so you start to like them. But the other thing about it is, I mean, if you even look at, like, the way that Vincent interacts with the wolf, Vincent might just be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, it, it's a great character. But, yeah, you know, you have to suspend disbelief at moments in this film. Like, when they're in that apartment and they don't have silencers and they're, it's just nonstop gunfire and screaming and yelling, uh, they should be a little concerned about how soon the police are going to show up. You know, and then he has the silencer when he's at Butch's apartment. So when, when they were at that apartment just firing their guns willy-nilly, I was thinking, you know, <laughs> that you'd think they would take a few more precautions. And how it was so early in the morning, too. It's like, <laughs> wasn't it like... Oh, yeah, it's like 7-something yeah, in the morning. Yeah. My only takeaway from that, BJ, was the fact that maybe they were in a part of town or a complex that was kind of used to that kind of stuff <laughs> Yeah, going I guess on. so. Yeah. <laughs> going back to the keying the car, though, Vincent has a line where he says, it would have been worth him doing it just so I could have caught him doing it. I loved that line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's funny, that, um, that red Malibu was actually Tarantino's like real car. I guess he had bought it with the advance money he got for this or, you know, money he made off of Natural Born Killers or True Romance. Mm-hmm. But that car was stolen shortly after um, filming. Oh, really? And it turned up about, I want to say like six or seven years ago, it turned up because the current owner of it had it stolen. And he had done a lot of restoration work to it and was entering it in car shows. And it wasn't until they recovered the car and connected, I guess, VIN numbers or whatever that they realized it was the Pulp Fiction car, that this guy had no idea he didn't steal it. He had bought a stolen car from somebody. And here he is restoring this, you know, 1964 Chevy Malibu, <laughs> not realizing it's like a classic movie car. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I also think the Honda that Butch crashes <laughs> was also, I don't know if it was actually Tarantino's real Honda, but that was the Honda that, you know, Tarantino was driving when he worked at the video store before he was a superstar. Right, right. All right, well, this was awesome. We covered a lot of stuff here, man. I can't wait to listen back to it. Is there any final sort of closing thoughts you have on Pulp Fiction? Well, you know, it's it's one of those before and after moments in the culture and in, in film in general. You know, after Pulp Fiction, uh, everything was going to be different. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a cultural landmark, and obviously insanely influential. And it was, you know, right place at the right time, because like I said, that was when alter- Alternative was mainstream. So Pulp Fiction was treated as much more of a mainstream film than it would have been maybe just a few years earlier, you know? Oh, totally. And and I think a lot of that has to do with also the marketing push that Miramax gave it. Yeah, well, they knew they had something really special. You know, how how could they not? One thing, looking at my notes, one thing I noticed that was interesting was, uh, you know, Butch escapes while they've got Marcellus in the room, Zed and 
what's the other whatever the other pawn shop guy's name is and uh is it rufus <laughs> i don't remember but you know he's gonna leave he's gonna just take off and leave marcellus and when he starts having second thoughts the frame of the shot there's a the whole background pretty much is a confederate flag and i thought that was i was wondering if that was purposeful but so he's yeah. he's pausing like should I help Marcellus and he's hearing the sounds of what's happening and behind him pretty much all you see is a big Confederate flag, which I thought was a really interesting kind of imagery as he's deciding what he's gonna do in that moment, you know. And then of course it was yeah. hilarious the way he picks up a hammer that he puts that that he grabs like a baseball bat that he looks at the chainsaws <laughs> and oh, yeah. then he the sees the selection. sword yeah it was really great yeah so yeah. many little details like that through that whole sequence it's amazing yeah and i mean and that's one of the things that makes tarantino special as a filmmaker is you know that attention to detail that he has sometimes and you know, focusing on something in a scene that, you know, another director might gloss over. And I also remember the first time I saw the movie, as Vincent was talking, was his name Martin, the guy that got shot in the backseat? Martin, Marvin. Yeah. As he's talking to him and he's got the gun, he's like banging the gun on the seat, my brain thought, that gun's gonna go off like right before the gun went off. Because <laughs> it really was yeah, yeah. like, you, you, you could see it happening as it happened, you know? <laughs> Yeah, great. well, it's such terrible, you know, gun yeah. to too. I mean, most people know, like, don't point a gun at something you don't intend to shoot. Right. <laughs> that is really funny. Uh, one last question before we go, and this is comes from the sort of uh, Mia Wallace, Barbara Walters interview scene that was deleted from the movie, but I, I'm trying to ask somebody a question from that every episode. Brady Bunch or the Partridge Family? <laughs> uh, hmm. I don't have much of an opinion on this. I guess Partridge Family because it's more music related. <laughs> All right, right on, right on. All right, cool. So again, uh, BJ, this was a lot of fun, and um, you know maybe we'll find an opportunity to sit down for this show again. I look forward to the next time we sit down for Rock and or Roll, and I know hopefully we're going to sit down for Big Screen Book Club. So um, in the meantime, I will include links to your show in the show notes, BJ, and. Uh, once again, thank you for coming on. Yeah, definitely. Anytime. <laughs>